Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Blue South. We've got a very special show in store for you all today, complete with a surprise guest. But first, the news. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, liberal and feminist icon, died on Friday due to complications from metastatic pancreatic cancer. She was 87. Uh, Ginsburg was known for her strong positions on abortion rights and women's rights, becoming the second woman to be appointed to the United States Supreme Court. Her death has opened up a vacancy in the Supreme Court and is sure to lead to a deeply partisan confirmation battle leading up to the November elections. So, Ronan, I'm curious, what's your take on this? He's always wanted this. He's wanted his lasting legacy to be his impact on the courts. You know, he's been packing the courts with conservative justices. So this is an unfortunate gift for him. Um, in an election year, but it's also deeply hypocritical because if you guys remember in 2016, the Republican Senate majority would not even consider Obama's um, Supreme Court nominee when Justice Antonin Scalia died. So now they argue that it's okay. It's okay to appoint a justice in the election year because the Republican Party controls uh, the Senate and the presidency, which I... I don't buy that argument at all. It doesn't make much sense. And, you know, ju- judging by what they went off of in 2016, they wanted the the voters to decide. And now I guess the voters don't matter in this case now. Right, Paul? I mean, I mean, yeah. And what's ironic is we, we've seen politicians like in my home state of South Carolina, Lindsey Graham, literally up until two years ago said, and I quote, this is on the record for the record. Feel free to use my own words against me. We will not appoint a new Supreme Court justice until after the 2020 elections. And yesterday on Twitter, he expressed his support for the president's plan to replace. So nothing new, I guess. I mean, yeah, it's just it's just what you'd expect from, you know, politicians these days. And, you know, uh, I honestly hope that it comes back to bite them if they do appoint a a justice before the the elections. Um, Now. Personally, I actually identify more with the conservative justices, Paul. You know that. You know I believe in originalism. But um, right. in, th- in this case, I think it's deeply hypocritical for the Republican Party to nominate somebody in an election year when they wouldn't allow it in 2016. So those are my views on it. But in, um, in other news, Europe, after being applauded for its most successful containment of COVID-19, um, is now facing a second wave of the virus as winter approaches. Daily case numbers reached 45,000 this week in the European Union and United Kingdom. Experts are attributing this new wave to a relaxation in safety measures and the return of workers to the cities as summer ends. Indeed, evidence suggests that this second COVID wave is being driven by young people, and numerous governments and agencies in Europe are reinstating virus restrictions in places they, that, that were reopening. So, Paul, I mean, you know, we Europe was being lauded for this, but... Apparently, it's gotten out of hand again. Well, yeah, I mean, that's I, I wouldn't say that's to be expected. But, you know, in terms of Europe being having such a high population density and especially movement of people throughout the Schengen area and beyond, it, it, was this unprecedented in that case? No, not at all. Um, but I do have faith in, you know, European leaders to get this back under control and uh, judging, uh, of course, a lot quicker than Trump has been doing now. <laughs> and uh, I think one of the biggest issues has, like I said, has been the young people kind of coming out in droves, kind of, you know, in a relaxed stance, um, you know, because as before all this happened, cases were going down. You know, we thought that the Europe was 
finally um, flattening the curve and getting everything under control. But, you know, this whole, all these young people have come back out um, and are participating in activities and it's causing a lot of uh, virus spread. So it's definitely something we hate to see, but um, Europe's going to have to get their act together quickly again. I mean, obviously we aren't, we haven't got our act together for this entire pandemic, but, you know, um, if Europe wants to, you know, uh, reopen, then they're going to have to, you know, re- reinstate virus restrictions. So, um, right. And, you know, moving on here, according to the Biden campaign, they have $466 million in cash reserves as they head into the final stretch of the race. Uh, the newly released numbers show Biden and the Democratic Party with a $141 million lead over the Trump and RNC campaign operation. The fundraising surge is widely attributed to the selection of Kamala Harris as Joe Biden's running mate, as well as the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which has, of course, motivated Democratic donors and active party members. And, you know, all in all, this fundraising hall gives Biden ample resources to effectively run his campaign until the election and in many ways improves his chances at winning in terms of ad purchases, marketing and community outreach, something that Trump has been slacking on. Well, community on the community outreach side, of course, we've seen we've had we've seen our fair share of Biden smear ads. <laughs> um, this is great news because before uh, in July, Biden was down big time in terms of money raised. Trump was raking in lots of money from Republican donors. So. It's really good to see that, you know, Joe Biden, has, the Biden campaign has pulled ahead in the race and it definitely increases his chances to win. Um, because like Paul said, the ad purchases, community outreach. So really getting into contact with uh, a wider audience and really spreading um, what he stands for and, you know, why Trump is does not deserve a second term. So it's really good. And uh, I think in, and also the, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg is really going to motivate uh, women voters, uh, particularly suburban uh, women as well, who um, who are going to donate because they feel that their abortion rights may be at risk because of what just happened. So, um, yeah, Paul. Right, exactly. And, um, you know, we have, and I'm not going to lie here, we have seen Biden fall behind in the polls to a, I wouldn't say marginal extent, but not to a an overly drastic extent, one might say. Um, you know, the death of RBG is obviously a tragedy and I, in any alternate universe would have most definitely preferred it to have never occurred, but, you know, just all this new attention being brought to her cause and the principles by which she lived, I think people are going to start seeing how Biden is really more willing to uphold those principles than Trump. And that may spark more motivation to vote blue as opposed to the current president. Absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, here's the part we've all been anticipating. Here's Graham McGuffick, campaign manager for Colonel Mo Davis, Democratic candidate for U.S. Congress from North Carolina's 11th Congressional District. Welcome to the show, Graham. Well, thanks for having me, folks. I'm, I'm excited about the next however long I'm going to be here. <laughs> well, obviously, we've got a few questions for you, but we know you're a busy man, so we'll try to keep it relatively short. Daniel, do you want to start? Of course. Uh, so to start off, can you give our listeners a bit of background on who Mo Davis is and what is the current uh, campaign battle you guys are fighting? Okay, yeah. So, uh, you know, Mo Davis was uh, born in Western North Carolina in Shelby, uh, lived here for about 25 years, uh, did his undergrad at App State in criminal justice. Uh, then he got his uh, law degree at the NC Central in Durham. 
uh, and then he wound up enlisting in the Air Force. Uh, thought he was going to be there for four years, wound up being there for 25 years, uh, probably best known for being uh, chief prosecutor at uh, Guantanamo for the terrorism trials. Uh, and he actually wound up uh, quitting that position when the Bush administration ordered him to use evidence obtained by torture. Um, he then went and had a year, a little over a year, with the uh, Congressional Research Service, sort of as the Library of Congress, as a uh, uh, specialist in national security, uh, helped uh, helped actually keep uh, eight different committees on the Senate and the House informed about national security issues. Uh, then <laughs> he wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that was critical of the Obama administration stance on uh, uh, closing Guantanamo and, and got fired from that job and fought the Obama DOJ for six and a half years for free speech rights for uh, for uh, government employees. So he sort of ticked off the Bush administration uh, and the Obama administration. So he's a guy who, who sort of, you know, he follows his own moral compass. He does what he think is, he does what's right when it's the right thing to do. Uh, anyway, then he was four years as a law professor at Howard University, uh, four or five years as a administrative law judge for the Department of Labor. He has, I think, an amazingly, uh, it's just an incredible resume. Uh, and, and he's been serving so long in terms of, you know, 25 years in military, a year in a suit in Congress, uh, for Congress, sorry, and then four years as a, as a, as a judge. Uh, he just felt that, that uh, he needed to keep serving to save, uh, to save democracy. So uh, now he's, you know, running for Congress here in Western North Carolina, up against a 25-year-old. Nothing that, I have nothing against 25-year-olds or folks of that age, but uh, you know, his opponent has uh, no education, essentially, no formal education, no job experience, um, and, and basically just has some incredibly white, uh, right, oh my gosh, that was a bad, uh, a bad uh, slip there, right-wing extremist views uh, that don't really represent, I think, the, the bulk of people in Western North Carolina. So you asked for a short answer, uh, and that was a little longer, and I apologize for that, but you know, Moe's an incredibly uh, experienced guy who's done, he's done a lot, he knows a lot, uh, and, and he really wants to represent the folks in, in Western North Carolina. And you were just talking about how he's running against a, a more younger candidate, and we know that Moe is, uh, he's definitely older. <laughs> and talking about that, I'm really interested uh, in terms of the campaign strategy, what is the campaign strategy to win over the younger voters who may be drawn to more uh, younger candidates? But we saw the success that you know Bernie Sanders had uh, winning up the uh, younger votes. So what is your campaign strategy in order to market towards the younger voters? Sure, that's a great question. So you know what what's you know most sixty two and and uh, his opponent is twenty five. So you know obviously there's a difference in age there. But you know. Uh, Mo's, uh, the things that Mo is going to be fighting for are really the issues that, that younger voters, I think, will, uh, will be drawn to. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, you know, climate change. You know, Mo, Mo believes that, you know, climate change is, is it's, uh, it, it's man-made um, and we need to do something about it. You know, on the, on the, uh, the opposition side, he's sort of a, a climate change denier, uh, technically. Um, you know, we're talking about living wage. Mo believes that we need to get to at least fifteen dollars uh, an hour, sort of a living wage. There, um, you know, the the opponent basically, you know, I mean, does not right. Um, we're talking about you know green technology, those sorts of things. Mo believes that Western North Carolina should be the epicenter for green technology, uh, for green energy. Um, uh, you know, and, and the other, you know, his opponent wants nuclear. 
Um, you know, so that there's a whole bunch of issues that really, really appeal to to the uh, to the younger voter. Um, and so it really doesn't have to do with with the age of the person. It has to do with whether or not they appeal to to your uh, to your beliefs, to the things that are important to you. So as far as that goes, we're hearing time and time again from younger voters who say that 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 Mo's the guy, even though he's 62, Mo's the guy who who is is um, who is supporting the ideas that that they also support, and and uh, Mo's opponent just absolutely absolutely does not. I mean, uh, Mo's opponent is really talking about things that the Republican Party was excited about in the 1960s. Um, so it's it's not even a new republicanism that uh, uh, that that Mo's opponent is 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 touting. It's it's old school Republican Party, um, and and that's that's really not going to appeal to to anybody, and definitely not the the younger voter. Right, and um, you know, speaking of your opponent, Madison Cawthorn, uh, it it seems as if uh, from what I've seen, he when he when he talks about when he criticizes Mo Davis or he talks about Mo Davis's policies. He doesn't really actually, he doesn't really talk about the policies. He kind of fear mongers about, you know, the, the Marxist mob or the leftist mob. And like, um, what is your, and then I understand like, you know, Mo Davis is more geared toward the needs of, you know, the, the people of Western North Carolina. And he talks about policies like you were discussing, green energy, living wage. How do you counter that kind of, you know, that kind of rhetoric coming from your opponent? How do you, um, how do you, you know, how do you counteract his kind of fear monger tactics? I guess. Well, and again, that's another great question. I, you know, <laughs> we have to have faith in um, in uh, the critical thinking skills of the electorate. Okay, we 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 have to 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 hope that the folks who are hearing the messages from Cawthorn, which, as you say, it's just it's rhetoric, it's alarming, it's it's uh, it's trying to appeal to the very very base level to make folks um, you know afraid uh, of of what might happen, um, and as you say, has absolutely no substance in in uh, in policy. Right? We have to hope, right. hope that folks can see that and see through that, and then when they hear uh, you know information from Mo, which is based on Here's here's what I believe. Here's how it's going to um, it's going to improve the lives of the people who live in NC11, uh, not just for them, for, for their kids and their grandkids. Um, you know, actual policies with 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 meat on the bone. Um, I, I'm you know we're we're hoping that that's going to appeal to those folks who can who can uh, um, take that information in um, and 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 decide. Hey, this is something that's going to help me. This is this is the person that I, I need to support. So, you know, it, it's not that we I mean, we, we can't have we have no control over what the other side says, what they throw out in ads um, and, you know, flyers and direct mail, and that sort of stuff there. We can't control that. What we control, what we can control is the message that Mo's uh, giving that we feel is going to resonate with, with with the with the largest percentage of the folks in NC11. And here's the important thing. Cawthorn talks, talks about the fact that when he goes to D.C., he will do, assuming that Trump wins, right? That's his assumption, which, of course, right. I feel is an incorrect assumption. But he will do whatever he is told to do by Trump. OK, Mo has said that he's going to go to N.C. to help the folks who live in N.C. 11, whether they're Democrats or they're Republicans or they're unaffiliated. He's going to uh, he's going to D.C. to represent everybody. All right. And, and that's an important distinction there. OK, he, he said Mo has said time and time again, 
that he's going to represent everybody, whether they voted for him or not. Uh, and that's that's important. We really need some folks who are more more uniters. And the fact that Mo has shown over his uh, over his you know thirty plus years of serving democracy that he does what's right. When it's the right thing to do, he does what's right. And it doesn't matter if he's getting if he's getting um, uh, you know commands from the Bush administration which was a Republican administration, or he's fighting the Obama uh, Department of Justice, which was a Democratic administration. He's doing what's right. So he's a guy who I think can go to D.C. and do what's right for the folks in NC-11, uh, not just the folks who voted him in. Um, and so that's sort of how we're trying to sort of um, offset the uh, uh, the rhetoric that we're getting from the other campaign there. And, and again, as I said, we're hoping that folks have the, uh, the critical thinking skills that they'll need to, to, to make uh, to make those distinctions. Absolutely. So speaking of policy and things like that, um, I understand that Colonel Davis feels very passionately about healthcare reform in this country and, you know, NC-11, right? So what are some of the healthcare problems that Western North Carolinians are facing currently? And how would the implementation of a public option, which um, Colonel Davis supports, remedy those issues? Sure. You know, the the interesting thing about healthcare is it, it it's not just healthcare. You know, there's all sorts of concentric um, you know circles that sort of impact uh, here. I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's poverty, um, it's education. Um, you know, it's the, anyway. There's so many different things that impact healthcare. As you say, it, it, it's it's not it's not a topic that we can that we can uh, address it within a couple of minutes. Obviously, it, it's. It's been a huge issue for decades, uh, and so trying to sort that out is it, it's going to take a lot of it's going to take a lot of elbow grease. Okay, is elbow grease right. even a thing? I don't even know. Um, <laughs> so you know, so you know, basically, um, you know, Mo believes that a public option is the way to go. Essentially, um, you know, healthcare from from uh, from cradle to grave that that you should not uh, because of illness or injury. Uh, be forced to make those decisions about whether or not you should be, you know, buying, uh, you know, paying for your uh, for your for your medicines or or buying food for your family. So, you know, a public option would give everybody coverage, whether they wanted to use the um, the, the health care that the government was providing or not. It still gives those folks who who want to buy their own coverage or they've gotten they've gotten good coverage. Through, um, through, um, their company or through the unions who possibly have uh, have been able to negotiate, you know, a good deal for them. Um, but, you know, the, the thing here is that we have to remember that NC-11 is not just Asheville or Buncombe County, okay? I mean, yes, yes, Asheville and Buncombe County is a pretty blue, uh, blue dot, but, you know, the other 16 counties are... Uh, mainly red. So, you know, right. Mo has to be, has to be appealing to, to, to as many folks as possible. And there's, there's a lot of folks out there. If you said, Hey, we're going to go to Medicare for all. All right. There's a lot of folks who would say, I don't want to be on that government, um, government healthcare. Okay. Just, just because they, they hear it and they think socialism. And of course they, they don't really understand what socialism is. Um, but you know, so Mo has to try to, uh, he has to try to target the, the, the most folks. Um, and, and, uh, you know, in a perfect world, maybe some sort of Medicare for all system would, would be the way to go. And let's look at every other, let's look at basically every other um, developed country in the world. They've sort of figured out that some sort of, you know, Medicare for all is, is the way to go. I'm not sure why the United States is, is having a hard time getting to that. Well, of course we know money, lobbyists, big pharma, et cetera, et cetera. Um, right. So, so, you know, we're, 
let me step back a little bit. You know, there's, there's just so much to talk about in this topic, uh, folks. You know, right now the United States is spending almost $11,000 per person per year on, on, on the healthcare system, right? And we've got right now, before coronavirus hit, we had about 30 million people who did not have any coverage. So our population. $11,000 a year. You look at our sort of peer nation, you know, uh, England, uh, Australia, Canada, Belgium, those different countries, they're paying about $5,000 a year for their health coverage and they cover everybody. Okay. So why is it that we are spending twice as much money as our peer nations and we still got 10% of our population that doesn't have coverage? There's something wrong about that. And looking at this from a more local perspective, look at the of charity infants in NC11. All of their members are covered by tribal health, right? And they're actually a district, they're actually a population that has, uh, you know, increased chances for diabetes. So they're a, a higher risk group. They're covering their people for about a little less than $8,000 per year. So we've actually got an example locally here who they're doing it for cheaper. Everyone's being covered. So there must be a better way for us to do this. There must be a more efficient way for us to deliver health care. The rest of the world has worked it out. I'm, I'm sure that we can. And I think that at least going to the public option gets everybody um, coverage, which is, I, I think that's that's at least the, the lowest bar we need to get is everybody having coverage. And then let's work on, let's work on making it better going forward. And whether that means we get closer to a Medicare for all system or not, I don't know. But I mean, there's a lot of details to be ironed out. Um, so I'm not sure if I actually answered your question there, but you know, uh, maybe we can fix that in post. All right. So one thing that's really resonated with me about Mo Davis is that he has stayed true to his principles. He's like you said, he stood up to the Bush administration regarding evidence obtained from court torture, and he stood up to the Obama administration regarding the right to free speech. So do you think his willingness to stay true to his principles is a rare trait these days? And how is it resonating with the people of Western North Carolina? Yeah, so um, I, I, I think that it's actually resonating with folks a lot. You know, as, as Mo's been traveling around WNC, um, you know, trying to get folks to, to, to understand where he's coming from. A lot of folks are asking him, why are you running? Um, and, and his first answer doesn't have anything to do with, you know, health care or jobs or broadband or anything like that. Mo says that he wants to bring integrity back to D.C. He believes that there are uh, that there there are fractures um, in uh, in the democracy, right? Uh, and 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 he wants to he wants to he wants to fix that. Uh, I'm not doing a really good job of, of of verbalizing this, but you know, I mean that that's that's big thing. He wants to bring he wants to bring integrity back. Um, and, and right. so I, I think that his past actions have shown um, that, that he's a guy who who you can rely on. Um, that, you know, it's, it's not that, you know, oftentimes in a political situation, you, you hear the ad, the ad that says something like, you know, do you want this person picking up the phone to, uh, at 3 a.m., you know, when something's on the line? Well, you know, Moe's had to make really, really tough decisions when, when things have been on the line. You know, he's put his job on the line a couple of times, his livelihood, um, to make that, and he's made those tough decisions regardless. Um, so, you know, Mo, Mo has been tested, right? Um, and, and uh, you know, you can't say that for, for a lot of people. You definitely can't say that for um, his opponent, uh, right, who basically has, you know, no, 
no record to stand on whatsoever. Um, so, you know, I, I think the fact that, you know, Mo, um, Mo's already made really, really tough decisions. Um, he has those experiences at the highest of levels. I think that folks are looking at that. And, you know, if you're just looking at this as an apples to apples situation, you know, it, it's Mo versus Mo, Mo versus Madison. It's, it's pretty easy, right? I mean, think about this. If Mo was running as a Republican and he's been a lifelong Democrat, do you think the Republicans would be rallying around him with his CV? Of course they would be. They would love to have somebody with his level of experience running for them. Um, so the fact that they've got this, you know, inexperienced, uneducated um, uh, person with some serious um, foibles, if, if you don't know that word, look it up, um, then, uh, you know, shows that they are, they are desperate. Um, so again, um, you know, Mo, Mo, just so you know, you, the question there, I think you said something about staying to his principles. Right. I did. Mo has, Mo has lost some endorsements um, because he's sticking to his guns. I mean, you know, when, when he started this process back in November of 2019, when he started running, he's like, well, these are the things that I'm going to run on. Okay. Uh, and now there are, there are organizations who wanted to endorse him. But because Mo would not change his stance on particular issues, they can't. Um, so, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I think that that's he's sticking to his guns. He's not changing his he's not changing his policies be, um, because it would get him another endorsement. This is what he believes and this is what he's standing on. Um, you know, in actual fact, let me come back a little bit further there. I mean, I don't, you guys probably weren't going to go into this at all, but I mean, there's, a, there's been a, a little bit of a. Uh, um, a, a furor about uh, about Mo's tweets um, out recently, and you know, Mo was a uh, um, he talked on you know uh, he was a, a headliner for uh, all the networks, you know, MSNBC, NBC, CBS, NPR, even Fox, um, and and so he oftentimes would would tweet things that were, and this was well before he started running for uh, for Congress, but he would tweet stuff that was a little bit bombastic. Okay, because you want to try to get folks to like and retweet, etc. Okay, in our social media world, um, and and uh, you know that that has caused him some uh, uh, that has caused him some some problems. But but you know I'll, when we started this process and we knew that Mo had you know a huge history of of, of, of tweets, the question was should we go back and scrub that? Should we get rid of the ones that that, that seem on their face to be a little bit uh, problematic? And Mo said nope. I stand by my words. I said that then. Why wouldn't I stand by those words now? So, I mean, that's still part of his, um, that's still part of, 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 of him. I mean, again, he's just such a principled guy. I'll tell you this as well. And I've driven a couple of thousand miles with Mo around uh, NC11 over the past 10 months. He does not drive over the speed limit. Okay. <laughs> And, and again, as the campaign manager who's trying to get to the next event, right? I'm always saying, "Come on, Mo, we got to pick it up." And he's like, "Nope, if it's 55, he's driving 55." So <laughs> I know that sounds like a real, real minor thing, but that's just part of Mo. Um, is that he really he is a principled man, um, and, and he wants to go to DC for the right reasons. Um, he, he wants to, to to fix the fix the cracks in our democracy. Um, he doesn't want to go there to be a, um, you know, a, a career politician. He wants to go for a couple of, couple of cycles and then head back home and, and, and retire again um, and, and sit on his back porch and drink some IPAs. Um, so um, anyway, again, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there just in case there's a few more questions to go. Right. Well, last question here. Now, backtracking to his opponent, 
So now I'm not trying to jump to any conclusions here because that sort of thinking is dangerous, but I and many others, I'm sure you've included, took notice to a somewhat questionable post made by Cawthorn on Instagram. I believe it was in summer 2017. He was visiting Germany with a friend or relative or something, and he took a trip to uh, Hitler's vacation home in Bavaria, known to us as the Eagle's Nest. Now, granted, in the caption of the post, Cawthorn referred to Hitler as evil. But it was the casual way he approached it, you know, smiling, saying that this was on his bucket list, saying something like, isn't it interesting how now I'm reflecting the same place where the Fuhrer reflected, what, 80 years ago? That just didn't sit right with a lot of people. In your opinion, what sort of judgment or action is necessary here? And you being on the front lines of this whole campaign, has it affected Cawthorn's running at all? So, you know, I mean, that particular issue, and again, just to give him a little bit of, a little bit of credit, he, he actually did describe Hitler as the supreme evil. Um, but, you know, he's talking about the fact that it was on his bucket list and that it didn't disappoint. Um, you know, I mean, I got a lot of things on my bucket list. Um, and I'm sure the views are nice from up there, um, but I, I, I'm not sure that's one that I would put really, really high up. So, you know, I, I, I think that in and of itself, that one post maybe um, wouldn't be enough to make me think negative thoughts about Madison Cawthorn, but there's an awful lot of other um, connections to white nationalism um, that, that we've, we've found uh, over the months um, with, with, uh, with Madison there. So, uh, and I don't want to get into that list. Um, I mean, I can if you want, but there's, there's, there's about, I don't know, six, six, seven, eight, nine different connections that we found that, that um, if nothing else, um, you know, is it a, is he telling folks, I may not be a member of your group, but I'm going to be a friend to your group. Um, you know, those are the things that if I was a voter in the area, I'd be I'd be asking some questions about because if it was just that one thing, maybe you dismiss it. But if there's six, seven, eight, nine different connections, now you got to be going like, wait, wait a second. Yeah, that's, there's something there. That's, that's that's too much of a coincidence. Uh, you know, so uh, again, you know, folks, folks can research that for themselves. Uh, I, I think, as I said, there's, there's an awful lot out there. Um, SBQR, Molan Labe, ADA, the Betsy Ross flag. Um, you know, his dog's name's Beowulf. Um, again, that's a, you know, read Beowulf. It's about nationalism. Um, so there's all these things out there that, again, if there were one, maybe even two, maybe you go like, eh, I, I can give him a pass. But I mean, there's a whole bunch there that makes me think that there's something a little bit more, uh, uh, there's a little bit more to that there. Um, you know, so. Um, Anyway, uh, you know, it, it's, um, I mean, we're, just so you know, the, our campaign didn't call him out on these things. I mean, that was actually some other research that was done by other, other outlets who, who did a bit more of a deep dive in, into Cawthorn's past. Um, and, and yeah, this, heck, we didn't even talk about things like, you know, he's been claiming for a while that he was, uh, um, that uh, the accident stopped him from from going to the Naval Academy. You know, he was, uh, he was, uh, he was given a nomination to the U S Naval Academy by Mark Meadows, the gentleman who, who, uh, who abandoned NC 11, uh, right. the chief of staff position. Um, and then he was basically telling folks that the accident was the reason he didn't get to go to the Naval Academy when in actual fact, he was rejected from the Naval Academy well before he had the accident, but he was continuing to let people believe that the accident stopped him from, from serving. 
Um, not to mention the fact that people all the time thank him for his service. I think there's a lot of people out there who believe that he was injured while serving in the military in some oh. capacity. Not that sort of result. misinformation is just, and the fact that he lets that persist is sort of. Exactly. Maria Bartiromo on Fox Business a couple of weeks back said, you know, thank you for your service. And there were crickets from, from Cawthorn in terms of, uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, I didn't actually, you know. So, uh, you know, is it a lie? No. Is it a lie by omission? I think so. Uh, and, and, and that, I think that speaks to the character uh, of, of Mr. Cawthorn. So I, I think there's an awful lot of things out there. Um, heck, we didn't even talk about Sorry, we didn't even talk about the, the three credible accu accusations of, uh, of sexual misconduct uh, against him there. So, you know, again, if there were one of these things, you know, maybe we cut him some slack. But boy, there's the, there's the whole white nationalism thing that's the lying about his, uh, his connections to sports academies and his ability to, to, to not understand that no means no. All of these things together mean that I think that the, that the Republicans have a seriously flawed, uh, a flawed candidate. Um, you know, probably the most um, uh, unprepared uh, candidate running for Congress in this election cycle. And then you compare that to Mo, who I believe is actually the most qualified candidate uh, running, running in, uh, in 2020. So uh, I think that the, the, the contrast between the two is, is it's very, it's stark. Uh, and I think if they're on any objective measure, there's no doubt, you know, who would win. Now, again, we're in a slightly red district here, so it's still got, it's still a bit of an uphill battle, but we believe that one of the reasons so much money is raining down on the area now from dark money, from, from PAC groups, um, is that they know that this race is close. Um, and so right. uh, all we can say is, if we're going to try to help turn the blue south, uh, then you need to vote for Mo. Yes, sir, absolutely. And, well, Graham, if I'm being completely honest, this has most likely been the most exciting episode in Blue South history. You know, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Uh, we certainly learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners will too. You know, you do, you're doing great work up there. Well, I appreciate it, folks. Thanks for inviting me on. And uh, Mo says hi to everybody. And uh, again, uh, all I can say is folks get out there uh, and, and vote and tell all your friends to vote. Uh, you know, if we have a, as you folks know, your group, you know, the youth voter here, it's a huge block. And if you folks get together and actually start voting, you can change the course of, of, uh, of, of history, right, uh, in the United States here by, by, by changing, changing the route. Um, so if you want to make us a more progressive country, you folks sure can do that. But anyway, thanks for having me on today. Yes, and we'll definitely keep that into account. And thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight. Uh, stay tuned for next week as we dive into the life and accomplishments of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And remember to follow us on Instagram. I'm Daniel. I'm Ronan. And I'm Paul. And this has been The Blue South. The Blue South is made possible by David Vandelay, who created our theme. And also by the graphic designer who rebranded our logo. You can find him on Instagram at Gustavinsky8. And of course, special thanks to all of our listeners and Instagram followers. You are what keeps the Blue South going.